The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 7, beginning at verse 4. We'll be reading through verse 14 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations but they had not known. Thus the land was left desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 13, beginning at verse 53. We will be reading through verse 58, which is also the end of the chapter the word of our God. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? When the, when did this man, where did this man get all these things? <clears throat> and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. The lion of the tribe of Judah refuses to be domesticated. You cannot put Jesus Christ into a box. Now you might ask, who would even try to do such a thing? And the very challenging answer to that question is, Nearly everybody, including us. 
We are all tempted to domesticate Jesus in one way or another. And to the degree that we do so, we miss out on the full experience of knowing Jesus, and therefore we miss out on fully knowing the living God. In fact, if we push this far enough, we can miss out on Jesus altogether. What does it look like when we try to domesticate Jesus? Well, let me give you a really crass example that you'll be familiar with. There are actually millions and millions of people who have recrafted Jesus in their own minds so that apparently the primary thing that Jesus wants out of their lives is that they would be healthy and wealthy all the time. Uh, I hardly need to say that uh, that's not what we get from the Jesus who's revealed himself in history and in scripture. And I trust that none of you is actually tempted uh, to exchange the truth about who Jesus is for this very self-indulgent lie. And yet there are much more subtle, or maybe not that much more subtle, but somewhat more subtle versions of how we can recraft Jesus in that way. In the United States, it is very common for people to believe in a Jesus who is very happy with American consumerism. Um, this Jesus seems to be saying to us, you know what? After all, I realize that you can serve both God and mammon. That's actually a temptation that may bump up into your world as well. And of course, there are countless numbers of people who believe in a Jesus who simply winks at or maybe even celebrates their own favorite sins or the favorite sins of their group. Now, to say the least, this Jesus has nothing to do with the Jesus who gave us the Sermon on the Mount, but we're tempted to recraft Jesus into an image that's more comfortable for us and doesn't demand that we make so many changes in our lives. This morning we come to the people in our Lord's hometown of Nazareth who very much want to put Jesus into a box. When they discover that the line of the tribe of Judah refuses to be domesticated, they become angry at him and they reject him. And they miss out on receiving great blessings, but worse than that, they end up on missing out on Jesus himself. We are going to look at this morning's passage under five main headings. First, thunderstruck. Second, the stone of stumbling. Third, the humility of the Son of God. Fourth, Jesus answers their question. And fifth, the tragic consequence of unbelief. Let me give those to you again. First, thunderstruck. Second, the stone of stumbling. Third, the humility of the Son of God. Fourth, Jesus answers their question. And fifth, the tragic consequence of unbelief. We begin with the impact that Jesus made when he returned to Nazareth and taught in their synagogue. Verses 53 and 54. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, if you've been with us, 
even if you haven't been, you might recall that back in Matthew chapter 12, um, Jesus' family members, his mother and his brothers, they kind of thought he was out of his mind, right? As he was getting more and more famous and becoming more and more of a big deal, they were worried about him, that, that perhaps he was becoming a bit delusional. So they came out to where he was teaching and tried to get him to return home. They didn't believe in him. Now Jesus returns to Nazareth, but he's not returning to Nazareth to enjoy some rest and domestic bliss with his family. Rather, as he returns to Nazareth, we see him carrying out his mission by teaching in his hometown synagogue. It might be helpful for you to remember that Jesus grew up in this synagogue, right? People had seen him sitting there and learning and celebrating and worshiping with the people of God, but now he is back as the amazing rabbi and he is teaching. Intriguingly, this is the very last time that Jesus will teach in a synagogue in the gospel according to Matthew. I mentioned a few weeks back that we've shifted from a time where Matthew is largely recounting the size of the crowds growing to an increased opposition to Jesus. That opposition will continue to grow and Jesus will no longer be welcomed into official Judaism. Up until this time, when Jesus showed up into the town, people would say, Rabbi, if you have something to say, please come and teach us. But no more. From now to the end of Jesus' life, he will be teaching in homes, he will be teaching in the fields, and he will be teaching in the courts of the synagogue, but he is no longer welcomed by official Judaism. Now, Matthew doesn't give us a summary of our Lord's sermon, only that those in the synagogue were astonished, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, the word translated wisdom here, I mean, the word translated astonished here is a very strong word. As astonished, it actually is a strong word. It's a good translation. But I kind of think that astonished has been used so much that maybe it's lost a little bit of its force. If that's true in your own thinking, I'd encourage you to think they were thunderstruck by Jesus. They were blown away. They had never heard or seen anything like this, and they couldn't wrap their minds around who he was and what he was doing and saying. The people in Nazareth were thunderstruck not only by what they heard Jesus say in the synagogue, although that's true as well, but by everything they had heard him teaching and by the numerous miracles he had been performing in the surrounding communities. Here's why that's so important to get. They're guilty. Their own testimony convicts them that they have seen the evidence. They have heard the evidence. See, these are Jews who knew the law. And there was Jesus fulfilling the messianic promises right before their eyes. And as we hear elsewhere in the Gospels, the things that Jesus was doing had never been seen in Israel. Right? There were miracles, but not like this. And furthermore, people had said, no man has ever spoken as this man has spoken. And that actually fulfills Isaiah, which we were already told in Matthew. Right? Jesus would open his lips and utter mysteries that had been hidden since the foundation of the world. But instead of following their own question to find out the answer, right? The, what the evidence they're seeing gets them to ask this question, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? 
But instead of following their question to the answer, they stumble over Jesus and they reject him because he doesn't fit into their box. Uh, You might remember that back in chapter 11, Jesus told us that the queen of the south had come from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Yet one greater than Solomon is here. Uh, The people of Nazareth didn't have to go anywhere. They didn't have to travel the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. God himself, the Son of God, was standing in their synagogue and teaching them. As they listen to Jesus teach, they are thunderstruck. But they want to domesticate him. I, I press that on yourself. In what ways do you want to domesticate Jesus as you read his word or hear it preached? They want to domesticate him, and the lion of the tribe of Judah refuses to be domesticated. And so they trip over who Jesus is and what he demands of us. Why? Why does Jesus become a stumbling block to them? Look at Matthew uh, 13, 55 through 57 with me, or at least the beginning of 57. They ask, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Why would they do that? You know, if a boy boy grows up in a small town, remember... Nazareth is just a little village. I mean, don't think of this as some kind of city. A boy in our own day grows up in a small town and becomes a famous athlete. Do people take offense at that? No, they celebrate him. He's our our, our favored son, right? A small town boy does good. They give him the keys of the city. I actually experienced this as a kid. Uh, In 1976, a young man by the name of Bruce Jenner, who had gone to my little high school, won the decathlon in the Montreal Olympics. And um, he not only won the decathlon, he broke the record for the decathlon. Time magazine called him the greatest athlete in the world. And he made his face on the cover of the Wheaties box. I mean, that's kind of making it as an athlete. No one in our town took offense at that. We're all going, small town boy goes good. That he's from our town, right? So why do the people of Nazareth take offense at Jesus? Instead of of thinking of him as small town boy makes good and is stirring up great things around Israel. Well, the answer is that Jesus didn't simply win an athletic contest and become famous. In his teaching, Jesus was telling them how they needed to live in order to please God. In fact, he was telling them they needed to change the way that they lived in order to please God. Please don't forget that the very first word of Jesus' message was, repent. Repent doesn't mean go feel bad. Repent means give up the way that you are living to follow me for the way that I am living and the way I am calling you to live. The Jewish adults in the synagogue are almost certainly thinking something like this. When Jesus was a little boy, we watched him chase butterflies in the field. That's the reality. He's a little boy. We watched him chase butterflies in the field. We watched him play in the dirt. We watched him as he took his first steps. 
We, we noticed him when he first began to learn how to read. And now he's coming back here and telling us how we need to live in order to please God. And worse than that, just go a little bit further up in the chapter, Jesus has just told people, presumably they all just heard this as well, that he is the great treasure hidden in the field, that he is the pearl of great price, and that if they're wise, they will joyfully sell everything they have to have him. Who does this Jesus think that he is? And so they stumble over him. Because Jesus would not fit into the box that a young boy from their little town needed to fit into. Well, perhaps that could use just a bit more unpacking. Because after all, Jesus is the pearl of great price. And since you know how valuable he is, why would they not be willing to let everything else go? But they would have Jesus. Two things. First... Jesus says that, at least in principle, you must be willing to give up everything else that you have for the sake of having him. Now, a lot of people would be willing to add Jesus to their lives like a consumer product. You know, uh, come to church, get a little bit of Jesus, makes your life better, give you some insights on how to raise your children, everyone will be a little happier, right? People would be happy to do that. And sadly, a lot of churches in America, I'm talking about evangelical churches, have actually marketed Jesus in that way. Right? He's like a consumer product. It'll make your life happier and your family a little bit nicer. But beloved, that is not the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords before whom every knee will bow. And many people do not want to give up their autonomy for the sake of being found in him and being his disciple. Second, while it is liberating to cast ourselves body and soul upon Jesus, this also requires, requires us to humble ourselves and to admit that we weren't doing rather well on our own. Thank you very much. Right? We have to acknowledge we are the people in need who bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that made Christ's death necessary. We should also remember that first century Judaism was an honor and shame culture. Now, that may be hard for some of you to relate to. But there's actually a significant downside. I'm not, all cultures have problems. There's a significant downside to an honor and shame culture. By the way, if you just think about the public honors part of it, we still have a bit of that in our university system today and uh, people getting degrees. And, you know, if you're working at uh, some engineering company, nobody is the uh, Bill Gates distinguished engineer of heat pumps, right? But, but in the academic world, you're the Mary French Rockefeller, distinguished uh, professor of New Testament. And it's why academics often have CVs that are six, seven pages along that like, list every honor they've ever gotten. Okay? So we do have a little bit of that. First century culture in the Mediterranean world was all about those public honors. One of the problems with that is public honors are a zero-sum game. If you get lifted up and are in the spotlight, the spotlight's no longer on me. And if Jesus is being lifted up as the one who is so important, doesn't that mean that the other people in the town are going to lose honors in exchange? Well, yes, it does. Now, John the Baptist, the first prophet in Israel for 400 years, the man whom Jesus says is the greatest person born of a woman up to that time, 
joyfully said, he must increase, I must decrease. But you know, it turns out that a lot of people aren't willing to decrease, that he would get the spotlight, right? right? Salvation is for your good, but it's for Christ's glory. And many people want both. They want the glory for their own salvation, and therefore they can't say it belongs entirely to Christ, and I contribute nothing but the sin that makes it necessary. Jeffrey Gibbs says it well. The only terms on which he will be Christ and Lord are his own terms. His terms are these. He provides everything, and people come to him in complete need and receive everything. God begins to be their gracious king in a new way, and they participate in his reign all the days until the end of the age. No one has any claim on Jesus by right or by birth or by proximity of any kind. Only the poor in spirit will receive everything from him. All people are by nature poor in spirit. Many, however, refuse so to approach Jesus. You get his point. We all actually are in this state of need. But it requires you to admit it and to cast yourself upon him. It turns out that the superficial familiarity with Christ's human nature was a contributory cause of their stumbling. But the fuller revelation of Jesus that they were now receiving also cast a brilliant life upon, a light upon themselves, upon who they are, and how desperately in need they were of his grace. If they imagined that the Messiah was going to put, pat them on their backs and tell them what fine Jews they were, they were in for a rude awakening. You need to pause and think about that a bit, because that didn't go away in the first century. There are a lot of people in the Church of Jesus Christ who think Jesus is going to come along and say, boy, i got a great catch with you. You are really a fine example of a Christian. And beloved, that isn't how it works at all. Uh, as we make people profess, just as you heard again this morning, when they're going to unite with the church, they come as sinners to Christ and are saved by him and his grace alone. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, means that we contribute nothing and therefore we receive none of the credit. The idea that there are eternal destiny, that's what Jesus is telling them, the idea that their eternal destiny depended on them following this kid they had seen chasing butterflies and playing in the dirt, well, that was too much for them, and they stumbled over it. They missed Jesus, and therefore they missed out on God. Now, you may have noticed that I slipped from the ESVs and they took offense at him, which is actually the translation of most English translations, into the fact that they stumbled over him. As long as you're hearing the word offense as stumble, it's okay. Right? They, that, that's the idea. But this word does mean stumble, right? Stone of stumbling, rock of offense. They don't simply have a negative emotional reaction to Jesus where they go, eh, I don't know, I don't like this guy too much right here. They're actually falling in a sense of apostasy away from God. They are stumbling to the point of falling. Consider this terrifying line from our Old Covenant reading this morning. 
the Lord says of Israel, as I called, they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear. Is that not precisely what the people of Nazareth are doing here? Jesus is there calling them, teaching them. They are rejecting Jesus. They are rejecting God in Jesus. They won't hear him. And they are putting themselves in the place where therefore God will not hear them in grace unless they repent. Now it's important to remember that they all had all the evidence that they needed. They were thunderstruck by both our Lord's teaching and his miracles. But they rejected Jesus because they wanted a far more domesticated Messiah. And Jesus Christ is not a tame lion. The crowd was thunderstruck by Jesus, but they also stumbled over him, even to the point of falling. And yet, the very thing that they stumbled over reveals something important about what our God is like. Beloved, the Son of God, by his very nature, is humble. I've made this point to you, and we talked about the incarnation, that God chose to be born in a manger. I'd like to make this point and drive it home a little bit this morning by asking you a simple question. Um, when you think about great events in history, you're watching a movie, you're reading a book, and you come across something like Martin Luther. There he is at Worms, and all the pressure of the empire is pressing against him, and Luther says, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Here I stand. God help me. I can do no other. Do you ever write yourself into the story? I mean, I do that. You, know, you write yourself into the story of history. And if you put yourself back there where Luther is courageously standing at Worms, what are you doing? Are you not standing with him? Yeah. Or if you were in the parliament while Wilbur Wilberforce began his long and righteous campaign to eliminate the barbaric slave trade, and you're reading it, you're watching a movie of it, you put yourself back into the story. Aren't you courageously standing with Wilberforce against this terrible evil? Of course you are. Right? Because when we write ourselves into the story, we always are going to present ourselves as being at our very best, courageous, filled with integrity, and on the right side of the issues. Well, as you know, you can't write yourself into the story. But the Son of God can, and the Son of God has. And when the Son of God wrote himself into the story of human history, here's what he didn't do. He did not come as a superman. He came as a normal boy. Right? He did not make himself three times as fast and twice as strong as all the other little boys his age. Trust me, women, every man in this room would have done that. Right? It, it's true, but Jesus did not. Jesus did not make himself particularly handsome. In fact, the Bible tells us he had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. Jesus did not like sculpt little birds out of clay, as later myths put it, and then cause them to fly away. He actually came into history as an ordinary boy, fully human. And he did that because he loves you. See, we all imagine those other things. The reason why those later myths come up about Jesus doing all these extraordinary things as a little child is because that's what we would have done if we had written ourselves into the story. We're not as humble as God is. But God himself, when he comes into history, writes himself in as a normal human being. 
Because he loves you. Because he came to save you. Because he wants you to know that he's fully identifying you and that for you and your salvation he has come down from heaven to be a true human being, to live the life that you and I should have lived, and to die the death that you and I should have died so we could be with him forever. Beloved, the Son of God stooped incredibly low so that he could lift you incredibly high forever. The very thing that the crowd stumbled over should move us to deep and joyful praise. We even see the compassion and humility of Jesus and how he responds to the unbelief of the crowd. Uh, Look at verse 57 with me. Verse 57. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. In their astonishment, the crowd had asked, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And in pointing out how wrong they are, Jesus answers their question. Right? Question. Where did Jesus get this wisdom and these mighty works? Answer. From God, I am a prophet. That's what a prophet is, right? A prophet's an ambassador who speaks on behalf of God. And Jesus is saying, all these things you see and all these things you hear, they are a revelation from God to you in me. John the Baptist rightly announces that Jesus was certainly more than a prophet, but we need to remind ourselves that he was not less than a prophet. Indeed, he is the prophet that Moses foretold, the great prophet whom the people must heed in order to have God's blessing. Therefore, to receive what Jesus is saying is to receive God, while to reject what Jesus is saying is to reject God. It really is that straightforward. Notice they said is, not was. It was that straightforward for them, but it's that straightforward for you too. If you accept Jesus Christ on his own terms, not domesticating him, not rewriting what he's like, but accept Jesus on his own terms, you are in fact embracing and trusting in the living God. In our own day, most Americans tend to treat faith and unbelief is they only impact our inner state. Um, You might have thought this at times yourself, but I assure you, if you talk to many of your friends, that's how they view faith. That's why, at least up until recently, where Christianity's gotten a really negative view in large swaths of our culture, if you told someone you were a Christian, they would say, I'm glad your faith makes your life more meaningful. It's good for you. makes you happy. Because that's what the only thing they think it actually does. Right? It only impacts your inner emotional state. And in this, the world is radically wrong. And I'm using the term radical there in its technical sense, that which gets to the root of the matter, that which is most fundamental about the matter. The world is saying that whether or not you trust and believe in Jesus Christ is about how you feel. And it's actually the most important decision you ever make. Right? It's what drives the entirety of your life and your eternity. For the people of Nazareth, their rejection of Jesus Christ had both immediate and eternal consequences. I have therefore titled this point, The Tragic Consequences of Unbelief. Look at verse 58 with me. 
And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, to be clear, Jesus does not need your faith nor do miracles, right? It's not like Jesus has grace and you add your faith and then you can have miracles. If you pull out your faith, you can't. We've actually seen this. Uh, all through the Gospels, Jesus is doing miracles, healing people, casting out demons from people who have not yet exercised faith in Jesus. That is not the issue at all. But the issue is this. What are the miracles supposed to do? There are signs that point to Jesus. And if you have those signs, if you have the evidence right before you, and you are rejecting who Jesus is, then it should not surprise you at all, but Jesus isn't going to bless you. Think about this in your own life, very practically. I mean, Jesus is not walking around healing people like this today. God still does healing, healing miracles, but nothing in particular to point out individuals to authenticate uh, the apostles as being prophets or to authenticate Jesus. But think about this. You or one of your loved ones has a serious health condition. You can't see. You can't walk. You can't hear, right? Jesus comes along. And in a moment, it's all changed. You or your loved one is completely healthy. For the rest of your life, would you not think of that as one of the great blessings that you've enjoyed? Right up toward the top of the list. The vast majority of the people in Nazareth, Nazareth missed out on that. Because there was the Son of God standing right in front of them, and they rejected him. Now let it be said, there are billions of people right now, who are missing out on blessings that could be theirs because they reject Jesus Christ. See, the blessings are not just those healing miracles. Jesus gives peace with God with every single person who trusts in him. The Father and the Son together give the Holy Spirit to every single person who trusts in Jesus. We could spend the next hour just listing all the blessings that come to us in Jesus Christ. And if you reject Jesus, you lose all of them. Every single one of them. But here's the thing. The worst thing that happened to the people of Nazareth was not that they missed out on some healing miracles. The worst thing that happened to them is they missed out on Jesus himself. Listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul would later write to the church in Philippi. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to a Jew, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Paul is not saying 
Please mark this. He is not saying this. There were all these bad things in my life, things I used to do and things I used to have. And when I came to Jesus, I got rid of all those bad things. What Paul was saying is, I held out my left hand and I started piling in all the really good things in my life. I mean, extraordinary things. I was set apart to God from conception as a member of the covenant people. On the eighth day, I received the covenant sign that marks out the righteousness that comes by faith. I was raised by godly parents who had godly parents who had godly parents. What an extraordinary heritage I had. I enjoyed the best education possible studying at the feet of Gamaliel. And you know, if another Jew was looking on, they would say, boy, was he blessed. But also, boy, is he not making a great deal of the blessings he had. He's running far ahead of all his contemporaries. Paul's saying, look at all these great things. And then on the other hand, there's Jesus. And when I consider the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, this stuff is just rubbish. Is that the way you think about Jesus? That in the balance, you put your everything that's good in your life on one side, and if it's apart from Jesus, it's not even worth considering because Jesus is so, passing, so far surpassingly greater. Consider Christ's own words in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus prays, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Beloved, life is short. Uh, that truth becomes more and more obvious as you get older. Uh, sorry for you young people, but it's true. Life is short. It's way too short for you to put off knowing and following Jesus when you can do that right now. You know, it's interesting, actually. Our secular culture wants to deny the fact that life is short. Because, um, you know, we're trying to sell things. But because we're trying to sell things and the fact that life is short is inescapable, the, the marketers get a hold of that, too. Uh, if you're old like me, uh, you'll remember the Schlitz commercials. Um, Schlitz used to run commercials all the time on television. Do you remember the tagline? You only go around once, so you have to grab for all the gusto you can get. Now that raises some interesting questions. I mean, if you're considering the brevity of your life, are you really thinking that the one thing that's going to make it worthwhile is a Schlitz beer? Um, I, I, don't, I don't imbibe, but I, I would suggest if you're going to consider that life is short, at least you can have a craft beer. Um, I leave that to your own taste buds. But the bigger issue is not that life is short. The bigger issue is that eternity is long. That's what I want to press on you this morning. In fact, eternity by definition never ends. If we insist on fitting Jesus into our own mold... Rather than receiving him as he reveals himself to us in history and in scripture, we are going to miss out on many of the blessings in this life. Most importantly, we are going to miss out on knowing Jesus and being found in him. Beloved, eternity is long. It is far too long for you to live without Jesus. Amen. Amen.